Hey, South Bend City Church Digital Fam, Mariah here. So thankful that you chose to join us today. I want to say, I know I say it a lot, but I just wanted you to know that we mean it when we say that we're so grateful to have you as a part of our community. We recognize that our community is both gathered and scattered, and we're thankful to have you as a part of our South Bend City Church family. A few things to keep in front of you. First of all, we have our new to South Bend City Church online table on November 7th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you would like to join us and get to know us a little bit more, who we are as a church and why we do what we do, you can go ahead and sign up in the Google form below. As always, if you consider South Bend City Church to be home and you would like to continue to see us do what we do, we can only do that through the generosity of the people that call it home. So whether that's of time or finances, we're just so thankful for the generosity. If you want to give financially, you can do that by going to southbendcitychurch.com backslash give. That link is also in the show notes. So if you just want to go click it, you can do that as well. We're so thankful uh, for all the ways in which you show up in our daily lives here at South Bend City Church. All right, we're going to jump in with this week's teaching, a part of our Old Creed New World series where we explore the Apostles' Creed. And today we focus on Jesus Christ, our Lord. All right, let's join Jason as we jump in with the rest of our community. Hey, uh, my name is Jason. Good morning. Welcome to South City Church. I'm one of the pastors here. And any given Sunday, um, I don't know all the stories in the room, but I know enough of the stories to look around when we sing songs and pray and to be especially moved. Um, when I see somebody singing a song or praying a prayer that I think might be really hard or a real stretch um, based on what they're going through, where life has them right now. And like today, we just did a whole liturgy about the faithfulness of God. And I was just so moved that all of the Notre Dame fans in the room are still singing. <laughs> I'm one of them. I'm with you, I'm just so impressed with that uh, movement of faith. Uh, hey, before I get into our sermon, our teaching this morning, I do want to give you a little report on something that our staff was up to this week because it's something that was made possible by this community and it's ex an expression of this community. Uh, if, you, if you've been around for a while, you've heard us talk for a while about how as a church community, we've found ourselves a little ecclesiologically homeless, which is fancy words to say that in the larger sort of world of church, uh, we haven't always known where we fit. We're a little bit misfit, and some of that's because of um, our theology and our practice. Um, some of that is because a lot of us have come from a world where we, we used to belong, but perhaps because of who we include here or some other facets of our community, we're no longer quite as welcome in some of those spaces. And we don't think church is something that you should do alone, and that exists at the level of individual people here in this community. We should do this together. But that also exists among churches, because churches are better and healthier, and church staffs are better and healthier, and pastors are better and healthier when we have a kindred community that we can learn from and contribute to and walk alongside. So that's been a, a burden with South and City Church for a few years now. We've felt that, and we've been asking what we could do about that. And all of that discernment and, and, and exploration led to what happened last year right around this time here in this room when um, like over 100 church leaders from around the country gathered for what we loosely call sort of post-evangelical space. Now, if this sounds like a lot of inside baseball, I get that, and we can get on in a minute to the rest of what we're talking about. But a lot of you probably want to know that, um, again, this year, our team was a part of this. We traveled out to Denver this past week and, again, had the chance to be a, a part of a very kindred community of fellow pastors and church leaders, to learn from each other and sharpen each other and encourage each other. We heard from voices like Gail Song Bantam, who is a pastor and friend from Seattle. She leads a church out there called Quest. 
and she spoke powerfully and prophetically uh, about what it can be to feel spiritually homeless and what it can be to find a home in spite of that. Uh, we heard from a scholar named David Gushy. He's an ethicist who's also written a really interesting book called After Evangelicalism, where he's just exploring like what, what would be the way forward for a whole bunch of us who have maybe come from that world but no longer call it home. Uh, there was a lot of like loose connection time and hanging out. Um, the entire gathering benefited from worship leadership from Mariah and Zach. And I got to tell you guys, when I got the text from the organizers saying that the other worship crew had fallen through and they needed new worship leaders, and I thought, I wonder if Mariah and Zach want to do this. My next thought was, they're not going to know what hit them. <laughs> and they didn't. Um, Zach and Mariah led with incredible um, poise and power in that room, and it was really something to see them ministering there. Uh, Matt talked to a whole group of leaders about fundraising. Go, Matt. Um, <laughs> Uh, we were in conversations around kids' ministry, Karen leading out in a lot of those spaces, trying to figure out how do we raise kids up to know the love of God and the good news of Jesus, but do it in a way that sidesteps some of the baggage and issues of earlier versions of all that stuff. So lots of good stuff going on in Denver this past week. And I want you to know that because like, this community makes that possible in a lot of ways. This year's gathering was built on last year's gathering, which was hosted here, which was made possible by like, a Christmas offering from the year before that. And even our ability to be out there this week um, was really like thanks to this whole church. And even though all of you weren't there, you should know that like, we carry this community with us into those spaces. Um, our team that, that shows up there does so w with you in mind and because of you. And so it was just a really good week, and we're really thankful for that. And I wanted you to know uh, what your team was up to in the past few days. Good enough? Cool. All right, awesome. Let's, uh, let's get back into it. We're in a series called Old Creed, New World. Old Creed because we as, as a church have inherited a story called the Apostles' Creed. It's um, uh, a way of making sense of Scripture and Jesus. It comes to us from like roughly 1,500 years ago, although it reflects thinking from like the very, very earliest days of the followers of Jesus. And we, we want to inherit it and hear it because like church isn't something that we're making up from scratch. We're here to actually like sit in front of the story that we've received and let it shape our imagination. And we're also here to hear it because we keep discovering that it has powerful and profound things to say to the, the new world that we're living in right now. That it's not just some kind of dusty, antiquated story. Um, it seems like really quite relevant and urgent for the world that we're living in right now. And yet also it's the case that in the world we're living in right now, there are new questions that we might want to bring to this story. And so we've been trying to do that as we move through the things that the creed says. And uh, in case you like, haven't been around for or the reminder is helpful, the creed begins like this. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And we've talked already about how to say we believe is to say that we as a community are becoming the kind of people who are learning to trust this story, to give our hearts to this story, to root ourselves in this story. To speak of a creator is to say that all of this is not simply here, it's actually given, it's desired, it's intended. All this beauty that we see seems to be here for a reason. And we played around a little bit with the idea that, that maybe all this beauty that we see that's been created around us is here because of that strange kind of incremental process called evolution. And maybe that's how God decided to create, which maybe that means that that's how God continues to create. So maybe in your own life, the good that God wants to create, the beauty that God wants to draw out of it, it might continue to look like that slow incremental process. Maybe that's the good and beautiful way that God does these things. Uh, next slide in the creed. And in Jesus Christ, God's only son, uh, we've explored already the, the tension and the, the meaning behind all that big universal stuff, big creator stuff getting dropped down into the individual life and story and body 
of Jesus, God's only son. We talked uh, just last week about the idea that um, if you already have a Messiah, if you already have a Christ, if you already have a son of God, then you don't need a new one, which would be really good for all of us who find our messianic hopes continuing to get wrapped up in new leaders, whether political or otherwise, remembering instead that we, like, we already have Messiah. We already have that in Jesus, so maybe we can be a little bit more independent of all the kind of factions and divides that are like roiling our world right now. And then the creed goes a little bit further in speaking of Jesus Christ, and this is where we're gonna land today. It calls him our Lord. Uh, now we've been talking about trust and commitment throughout this because we said we believe is about trust. It's about heart. It's about not just the ideas in your head. It's about where you kind of plant your groundedness in your life. So we've been talking about belief and trust from the very beginning. However, I feel like, uh, like at this moment, uh, it sort of like gets amplified to say like our Lord. Like, I don't know how those words feel to you. Uh, maybe they feel the way I felt uh, on a bad day in my own life in Chicago years ago. I'll explain. So uh, years ago, um, I'm, I'm dating someone and she's in Chicago and I'm in South Bend and we're early in our relationship. And we're in that kind of like Twitter-pated phase, you know, right? Where you just like, you're just all like gushy about the fact that you get to be with this person and you feel like you're the luckiest person in the world. And so I'm over there, and we spend a whole Saturday together, and it's just like the quintessential, like, hipster Saturday in Chicago. We go to an overpriced brunch, and then we go to the zoo. Uh, we take our dog on a walk, have a great dinner together. And just as we're wrapping up, I'm dropping her off at her apartment building in, in the, her neighborhood there, and I've got my car out in front of our building, and I'm, like, throwing a bag in the back of the car, and my phone rings. And I'm kind of, like, looking down to see who's calling me on my phone, and it's somebody I've been playing phone tag with for like four weeks. It's a work thing, and it's like an important work thing. So my phone is ringing, and just as I notice that my phone is ringing, and it's a call that I've been trying to make happen for weeks, just as I notice that, she, she gives me this big hug, and she says for the first time, I love you. <laughs> and I say, I have to take this call. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. The worst part is some of you, this confirms some of your deepest suspicions about me as an emotionally unavailable person, that's fine. Some of it was the call and some of it was the call was a really convenient way out of it, like a commitment phrase, like an uncomfortable phrase that I was really not ready to say that day, right? And some of you feel that way about these two words, so there. We've gone from, like, we believe in a creator. Awesome, great. We believe there's a mystery behind everything, that there's a, a loving, generative energy within all good and beautiful things. We've gone from that big and universal thing, and we've seen that get dropped down into the particularity of Jesus in his life, in his body, in his story. And now we come to these two words, our Lord. Not just, like, the Lord, but ours. Like, we are committed and surrendered to this person and this story. And I think that's where this really starts to get uh, dicey for a, a lot of us in the modern world, whether it's because you've got like religious baggage or because the specificity and particularity of this commitment, um, you don't know what you would do with it in a world with many other commitments because it's maybe been used or lorded over you, I don't know, but surrender and commitment really starts to hit here in this phrase. Uh, I think one of the reasons this is hard is not just it's a big commitment, um, but also uh, because 
a lot of us have heard some bad gospel preaching in the last 500 years. All right, now we're going to shift to the part of the teaching that's a little bit like historical, theological, academic. So uh, if, 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 if you want to hang with me on this part, great. Uh, this part might seem like the most abstract part of it, but I, I want to explain like how it is that we got to this moment in the new world that we are living in. Because new world doesn't just refer to like geopolitical events. It also refers to the whole kind of like theological climate that we're living in here. And I'm going to make a case from a certain perspective. Um, it's not the only perspective in Christian history, but I'm going to make my case and you can see what you think about all of it. Um, our Lord. We believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Commitment and surrender to him as Lord. Uh, 500 years ago, roughly, something really important was restored, was rediscovered, and something got lost. Let's talk about what got restored, what got rediscovered. Roughly 500 years ago, the loudest voices claiming to represent God and faith in the world were doing so in a way that was largely corrupt and, and abusive. It's not the only story, it's not the only truth of that moment, but in a lot of ways, a lot of the loudest and most powerful voices claiming to represent God, Jesus, the church, were doing so in a way that was corrupt and abusive. There was fear manipulating people into enriching the church at their own um, poverty and expense. Things like indulgences were the way that you bought your way for yourself or others into heaven. Guilt and shame Fear, manipulation were the operating system, were the currency of so much of the church at that time. And then a guy comes along named Martin Luther. And Luther himself is racked with a personal sense of shame and guilt. You, can, you read his writings and you're like, this is a guy who is cowering with fear before God and in his faith. And then into that deep woundedness in his own life, this word of grace breaks in. And he rediscovers, he re recovers for all of us, largely through reading the letters of a guy named Paul in the New Testament, this baseline truth that we don't earn our way with God, that we don't prove our way with God, that we don't fight our way into God's kingdom, but that God gives it to us graciously, that we don't bring our works to this to get God to say, finally, I approve of you because you've lived up to my standard, but rather that God freely and generously gives God's life and love to us. And he restores that, recovers that, rediscovers that, not just for himself, but for all of us who are living in the wake of the ideas that shape the world, in the, in the wake of the powers and authority structures that are wrapped around the church, right? So he recovers this, this big, beautiful idea, largely through readings of Paul's letters in the New Testament, where Paul's really clear on this, because Paul's trying to figure it out, like, wait, how is it that Jewish people and Gentile people are all together in this one big thing? And as Paul's trying to figure out how it is that all kinds of people are welcome and included in the church, in the kingdom of God, it requires Paul to tap into these big, beautiful truths about the grace and the mercy of God. Now, Paul's not the first guy to say this in the Bible, by the way, and this is really important. Grace, mercy, and forgiveness are not new ideas that just hit the world 2,000 years ago. They've been there embedded in the earliest pages of Scripture. Like, like, for example, these are the Psalms. These are prayers written centuries before Jesus where the psalmist says things like, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But there's forgiveness with you so that you may be revered. Or another Psalm here, 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far God removes our transgressions from us. 
So, like, it makes sense that we would want to recover this because it's been there from the very beginning. You can go back even further, like all the way back to the law in the Old Testament, the story of the Israelites and the Exodus. And the first words of the law are not, do this and don't do that. The first words of the law are, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Those are literally the first words of the law. And in other words, even the first word of the law is grace. It's been grace through and through. And that story had gotten so lost in the medieval mid-century church there that, that Luther had to come along and rediscover it for his own sanity and salvation and for a whole bunch of others who were having a hard time living under this abusive, corrupt, very like confused theological structure that was being leveraged by powerful men for their own power and wealth. Thank God. Thank God Luther helped all of us recover the idea that it's grace by which we find ourselves held and embraced by God, right? So something really wonderful got recovered and restored. But something also got lost. And this is, I'm painting in broad strokes here, and we can quibble about the details and point out all the ways. This isn't exactly the way to tell the story. But at a baseline level, you could say that the thing that got lost is that we thought we could have the gospel without the gospels. That we could have the good news without the gospel, which is the good news according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, Today, right now in the world that you're living in, and again, I know a lot of you aren't reading theology blogs on your Monday morning. I get that. You have better things to do with your time. (laughs) But whether you know it or not, you've probably been shaped by this. Whether you're aware of it or not, you're probably unaware that this is one of the big ideas that continues to push on us in the world. So much so that what I'm describing right now, by the way, which you could call... um, uh, like the new neo-reform movement. Time Magazine, Time Magazine of all things, called this one of the 10 most important ideas shaping the world not too long ago. So whether you know it or not, it's, it's out there in the water and in the air, where um, even today there are theologians and church leaders who will say that, um, that you're not preaching the gospel if you aren't just harping on a couple of sentences from a couple of Paul's letters interpreted in a certain way with no mention of the gospel according to Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. There are serious theologians today who will ask whether Jesus preached Paul's gospel as if Paul is the standard for the gospel and then we ask whether Jesus lived up to Paul, which is bonkers (laughs) because we're not Paulists, we're Christians. I don't know if you knew that. Um, Okay, I'm wrapping up the inside baseball part here, but I I just want to say... We've been living in this this theological historical current where what the gospel means, I think, has gotten sort of confused a little bit. Um, But it is as biblical as you can get to say that the gospel is the thing that Jesus promised in Matthew 4 when Matthew says Jesus preached the gospel and a bunch of people got healed. Or when Matthew's called the gospel according to Matthew, and Mark's called the gospel according to Mark, and Luke's called the gospel according to Luke, and John's called the gospel according to John. And those are stories, biographies, about Jesus showing what it looks like when his reign works its way out in the world. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel, showing what the divine life looks like and demonstrating the fact that it's already here. Which suggests, which invites, which compels, which asks you, like, do you recognize the divine life when it's right in front of you? And when you see the divine life, will you surrender to it, submit to it, honor it, revere it, recognize it, come underneath it? 
be on your knees before it and say, this is the divine life. And I want to recognize it and honor it with everything I've got. One of the dangers in that whole kind of historical development that I just told you about, where we like started preaching the gospel without the gospels, is that we could be um, subject to the same criticism that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 7. We're talking about Jesus, our Lord, right? That's the language, Lord. So it's interesting what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7 when he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Let's keep that on the screen for a minute. This is so interesting to me. These are people who apparently have done really dramatic things in the name of Jesus. These are people who apparently like done miracles in the name of Jesus. And he says, I never knew you. Don't call me Lord. Like, don't put that word on your lips because it's not true of the way that you've actually lived. Um, we spent all of last year, like nine months of it, working through Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And this is at the end of Matthew 7, precisely because we want to be the kind of community who turns to the Gospels to hear the Gospel. And it seems to be Jesus saying, the life of God is here right now. It's given to you freely and generously. It shows up in my life. And your life is a part of that life as much as you recognize it in my life and come underneath it and follow me into that kind of life. It's, um, it's not big, dramatic, like spiritual pyrotechnics, like casting out demons and performing many miracles. It's not that kind of stuff. It's the kind of uh, like grassroots, everyday, radically different kind of life he describes in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's not casting out demons. It's forgiving your enemies. If it is performing a miracle, it's the kind of miracle that happens in the human heart when we learn to pray for those who have hurt us. If there's a demon that we are going to cast out when we call Jesus Lord, Lord, it's going to be the demon of exploiting one another and using one another and seeing one another through the kind of objectifying lenses of lust and exploitation. Like those things need cast out of us. And those seem to be the kinds of things that Jesus says you would do if you really knew me as Lord. And gospel, like good news, is that the divine life has actually arrived in Jesus. And the invitation is to follow Jesus into it. It's freely given. Anybody is eligible for it. But it's not devoid of content. You don't get to just slap Jesus on anything else, call it good news or gospel, and then like, keep walking forward. It's got to actually be tethered to the, the actual life, the way of being that Jesus is trying to lead us into. We've said before, you can be all about Jesus without remembering what he was all about. And for people who say, we, we believe, we trust, we give our hearts to Jesus, our Lord, is to say, we want to remember what he was about. We want to root our lives in the actual divine life that he taught and embodied. Now, if I could just make my case a little bit further before I kind of wrap up all this theologizing. Uh, the book of Acts shows the apostles preaching the gospel, people repenting and being baptized. And it's just interesting to me how the sermons from the book of Acts sound like nothing <laughs> like a modern American gospel sermon. They just like have nothing in common with a lot of what calls itself gospel preaching in the world today. Let me show you, like, for example, how Acts 2 goes. This is the end of Peter's big first sermon at Pentecost. He talks about Jesus' life and teachings and then how he's crucified. 
And then he says, this Jesus, God raised up. And of that, all of us are witnesses. He's speaking to people who actually saw this resurrected life. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, Jesus has poured out this that you both see in here. He's talking about this big moment at Pentecost where the Spirit of God is poured out on all these different kinds of lives. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's Peter doing some textual work for his Jewish audience. Next slide. Therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made Jesus both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, Forgiveness, absolutely. Freely given, absolutely. But the heart of this sermon is the divine life was here. And not only did you miss it, you killed it. And that's still you and me today sometimes, isn't it? The divine life can be right here in front of us. And we miss it and we reject it and we rebel against it and we war against it. We war against it in our neighbor and in our enemy. And the creed is inviting us to come back to that that perfect moment in history where that divine life was here in flesh and blood and to surrender and submit, to be committed, to like recognize it and to have the right kind of response to that thing. And I know that like um, we have a community of people who come from the widest possible spectrum of belief and experience and I love that about South and City Church. And that's where I think these moments in the creed become the most sort of awkward for some of us here. Um, but the creed seems to be saying, like, don't, don't miss, don't reject, don't ignore the divine life that was there distilled in Jesus. And when you see the divine life, the only rational response is to submit to it, to surrender to it. And phrases like our Lord are phrases for that kind of relationship to the divine life that you see right there. Now, that being said... One of the things about the world that we are living in right now is that there is a reckoning happening around power structures and modes of leadership that are abusive and harmful. And it's being called out in the world at large, and it's also being called out in the church, where certain ways of exercising authority and certain visions of power are being shown, being proven to just wreak havoc on the human spirit and on, on the flourishing of every, every kind of person, right? I mean, it's one of the ways that you can narrate the moment that we're living in culture right now. Like, we are, we are having a reckoning around different visions of power and authority, both in the world and the church. And perhaps if, if, if you're feeling some tension around, like, lordship, maybe the thing you're feeling has to do with that reckoning that we are facing right now. You know, especially because it tends to be the case that however we conceive of God is how we conceive of power, right? And however we conceive of power is how we conceive of authority. And then anybody who finds himself in authority or desires authority, it's pretty hard not to align yourself with your actual vision of what that actually looks like. And this is where Jesus gets very interesting to me. Because the case I want to make is that Jesus is, is fittingly Lord, the divine life, and yet he, he carries that uh, radically differently 
In fact, what I really want to say is, though he deserves to be called king and lord, he chooses to be a friend or brother. And it's a very different posture of authority or lordship. In John chapter 15, Jesus is kind of like with his friends, and he's, he's wrapping up like his season with his disciples before he'll be crucified and resurrected. So in John 15, we get this really extended discourse. It has the feeling of like last words, of a parting sentiment of Jesus distilling the things that are most important to him as he speaks with his disciples. And it's interesting here in, in, um, in John 15, what he does with this sort of posture of lordship and, and kindredness. Uh, he, he's talking a lot about love here. Like he sounds like a hippie in John 15. It's great. He won't shut up about love. He says, as the father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, there's that lordship thing. If you keep my commands. Like he's not messing around about that. No, I'm, I'm actually showing you what the divine life looks like. Pay attention to it. Submit to it. If you keep my commands, you remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. But then he goes on, my command is this, love each other as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants. Watch this move. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. Did you watch the move there? I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. I think it's really good and important that the creed teaches us to know Jesus as our Lord. And then, the Jesus I meet in Scripture, the next move he makes to those of us who find ourselves desiring to submit, to surrender, is to call us friends. Like, I, I almost picture this in postures, like visibly, physically. Like, to, to come before a Lord is to really, like, like, be down on your knees, to be in a posture of surrender, submission, humility, right? And the way I sense this move with Jesus is that like, this is a fitting and appropriate way to respond to the divine life that we see in him, the life of God in him. And yet, that like the minute we do this, that Jesus' next move is to grab us by the shoulders and pick us back up because he would rather look us eye to eye. That he would actually want to lift us up and restore us to a place of kindredness, of friendship, that we call him not just Lord, but brother and sister. There's um, a theologian named Ada Maria Sase Diaz, a Cuban-American theologian, a feminist theologian, a woman who's thought a lot about power structures, having come from the background that she came from. And uh, she argues that the language of kingdom that comes from the New Testament that refers to lordship might be better rendered in light of who Jesus is and what he's done. This next slide, kingdom. The people who call Jesus Lord find themselves raised up, lifted up into a status of friendship with Jesus. Kindred with the king. And I don't think we should lose either part of that move. I mean, I, I just think it makes, if you, if you see the divine life in Jesus, if you see the life of God there, it makes sense that you would surrender and submit. And the language of our Lord is really fitting for that. Don't lose that. But don't forget the character of the person we call Lord. 
Don't forget the things he actually said and did, including the fact that he looked at his, his, his followers and said, I don't call you servants, I call you friends. And I don't know about you, but maybe you will find that like in your own life in relationship to this, in relationship to him, that you discover this sort of pattern, that you'll keep discovering something worth revering in Jesus, which brings you to your knees. And that every time you do, the next thing you might discover is that he grabs you by the shoulders and lifts you up and brings you eye to eye with him because he's looking for friends. That's a very different vision of lordship and power. And I think today in the world that we're living in with a reckoning around hierarchies and authorities and power structures and ways of using power in the world and ways of abusing power in the world, I think it would be really useful that we would continue to center Jesus our Lord precisely because his vision of power is so radically different. Because he looks around and sees people on their knees in front of them and he grabs them by the shoulders and picks them up and calls them friends. And because then if we want to call Jesus Lord, then we've got to be the kind of people who do that with the people that we have any power over. That anywhere we find ourselves with the most influence in the room, with the most sway, with the levers that we can pull that affect others, whether it's in the household, in your family, in a school, in a place of work, in a church, that wherever we find ourselves in those situations, able to pull a lever to move things, to push things in the world, we'd better look around and realize the people that we have power over, authority over, that, that if, if Jesus, our Lord, grabs us by the shoulders and picks us up and looks us in the eye and calls us friends, kin, sisters and brothers, then we've got to find a way to have that relationship with the people that we have power over. Like, that's a fundamentally different vision of a way of building the world. And it's not, we don't, we don't get there by throwing out this old story. We get there by going all the way into it. Um, the creed's not shy about inviting us to surrender and submit. And surrender and submission, these are scary words for all of us, I know. They become especially complicated in a world where people use things like surrender and submission to abuse and manipulate. But one thing I'm very sure of is that Jesus doesn't play that game. And that to me is what makes him like trustworthy to be called Lord. Um, time for the sermon to be done. <laughs> just kidding. Right on schedule. I just wanted to give us a minute to meditate uh, on that moment from John, because I think for people who are learning to trust the story that calls Jesus Lord, I think it'd be really good for us to find ourselves there with Jesus in John 15, when he speaks to us of love for one another, and when he speaks to us not just as servants, but as friends. So this is a way that we've been sort of wrapping up during this series, a way of moving from the head to the heart, a way of um, being present, and me shutting up for a minute, and us being like with the scripture and with God. And so, uh, again today, if you want to enter into that, you're welcome to. It might just be helpful to put your feet flat on the floor or some other posture of presence and intention. If it helps you to close your eyes, you can, although you certainly don't have to, and you don't have to opt into this at all. Um, but if it's helpful to you, I'll lead us in a bit of a reflection on this text from John 15. I'll pray, and then I'll take us through the text. Loving God, we do not want to miss 
the divine life. You've revealed it in Jesus, and we want to see it. We want to see it because we are hungry for divine life. We are famished. We have been feasting, gorging ourselves on so many other things, individually and collectively in the world. We long for the life that gives life, that heals and sets things right. I pray that you would give us eyes to see, the eyes of the heart to see it in Jesus. And as we do, I pray that you'd help us to find us there with his disciples in John 15. So, uh, friends, let me guide you into this text. Imagine that you are there with Jesus. It's a long meal, a big table. There's bread and wine. And before you hear Jesus speak, perhaps you look around and you notice again what a strange and beautiful collection of followers he has brought together. On your left and right, you have every kind of person there. You have uh, Matthew, the tax collector. He conspires with the Roman Empire. You have Simon, the zealot, whose movement had committed violence against people like Matthew. You have women there whose reputations had been sullied by men who were hypocrites, who made objects out of those women, and Jesus saw them as human beings. You have children at that table, uncommon in that era, but Jesus seemed to welcome and delight in them. So you look around and you see every kind of person there. And the thing that has bound you with those others is the reverence that you feel for Jesus, that it's really hard to deny you have seen something in him that you had never seen before. So you feel an honoring, a, a reverence toward Jesus. And then you hear Jesus say this to you. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you, which is to say I lifted you up. I elevated you. I gifted you and called you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. And then once again, he says, this is my command. Love each other. And maybe it's in this moment, maybe it's others, but you picture yourself in a posture of reverence toward Jesus. Maybe you're on your knees, your head is bowed. 
And it's, it's actually just an honest response to the life of God that you have seen in him. And in that moment of reverence and submission and surrender, you feel a pair of hands on your shoulders. And though you are there bowed down, you realize it's Jesus lifting you up. And the one that we call our Lord in the creed looks you in the eye and calls you friend, calls you sister, calls you brother, says, welcome to the family. We're in this business together. even now uh, to embody that. If you're able, will you stand? May you see in Jesus the divine life. The life of God healing and working for good. God giving God's self in love for us and for the world. And if you feel awe within you, if you find yourself revering that which you see in Jesus, may we be the ones with enough courage and vulnerability to submit and say, yeah, our Lord. But as we do that, may we know the one who grabs us by the shoulders and picks us up and looks us in the eye, who calls us friends, sisters and brothers in the family and may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you next week.